The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how's it going, man? It was an exciting day. I can't get into a lot of the details. I'm just, for a family office, it was action-packed. It was like Die Hard meets Jurassic Park. Huh. Yeah, it was that level of excitement meets a math exam. Like, it was, was like, it, then it comes back down. Like, it, it goes that, no, not a rectal. So... It's a it pterodactyl. Was, uh, I said pterodactyl, <laughs> not pterodactyl. Wow. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was that type of day. How was it in uh, your neck of the woods? You know, it wasn't too horrible. We're uh, still rocking through a bunch of those well-trialed exams because everybody's gearing up to go to school. My girls go to school tomorrow, so they're actually in bed now. So, good times, and we'll see how that goes. But... Tom, we do want to bring on our guest. We get him in here to, to have some fun with us early. So we want to welcome Brad to the show. Brad, how you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. We appreciate you being on, despite all the technical difficulties. Um, <laughs> we've been trying we'll to record for about 45 minutes now, and we're just now ready to go. So that's but how I knew he was going to be fun. He took that like a champ and kept us laughing. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a fun show. I, I'm going to appreciate this. So. Yeah, we should the least stressful part of our days, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. You got to enjoy it. Yeah, trying. And until I find a way to mute myself somehow. <laughs> so that's always fun. But Brad, how was your day? It was good. It was good. Nothing really <laughs> notable happened. You know, woke up with the kids, went to the office. I did, today was my surgery day. So I had a couple surgeries in the morning, then went for office hours in the afternoon, and then back home to the kids, put them to bed, watched a little West Wing with the wife. And uh, reruns from, I guess, 20 years ago now. And uh, now oh, here gosh, we are. It has been, yeah. Wow. I, I really would say West Wing was like one of my all-time favorite shows, old President Bartlett. So uh, that was a fantastic show. What made you into West Wing? Are you a political junkie or you just happen to like it? So I watched it, I think I watched it when it was reruns. Because when it was on, I think it was in college. So I didn't start watching it until medical school. I think it was because one of my roommates was into it and I watched it and it just made me want to be better. You just see everyone on that show is just so smart and engaged and awesome. And you're like, I wish I could be like that. And I just feel like it, it always inspired me to like do a better job at whatever it was I was doing. And now my wife, who actually didn't grow up in this country, so she didn't see it. I introduced her to it and I walked into the room. I had been with the kids putting them to bed and I walked downstairs and she had put it on. So she's getting back into it. Maybe because we have an election coming up. I don't know. Probably. Probably. Yeah. 
I would say I, I agree with you. Like that whole show, every time you watch it, you're like, wow, it would be so amazing to work in the White House. So every time you watch an episode, like something awesome happened. And I always uh, thought that was great. I've always been into politics, though. So that was a, a fun show for me to watch. And I'm like, that'd be pretty cool to work in a place like that. Oh, yeah. Although it's so they're just rapid fire dialogue. Like, I don't I don't think human beings actually talk to each other like that. I'd be pretty intimidated. It's just like so fast and so clever. And they just have so much information at their fingertips. I interned for a congressman in college. And I will tell you, I don't remember anything that super (laughs) cool. I mean, I got to do some I got to do some very interesting things. And I was part of some decisions. I was like, I can't believe someone's asking my opinion on this. But at the same time, like you said, when you're watching West Wing, I'm like, no, you sit around for like 45 minutes typing something. And then in four seconds, they ask you yes or no. And that's that's the decision. So I'm like, oh, okay. So that's how it really happens. And you're like, I'm going to make this great argument. And they're like, just tell me what we're doing. And you're like, uh, yes. And like, okay. <laughs> and then they will walk forward. And you're like, oh, all right, never mind. So that's how the, the government at the lower levels actually played part in my experience who was it that you worked for a representative out of hawaii when i was at university of hawaii so it was it was actually at the state level it wasn't u.s level but when i talked to other people at the you know from the congressman's office because i talked to them i even speaker of the house like i met people from all over the place and they're like no it's it's like this just way bigger i think honestly and this is going to sound dumb and this is how you know it's true the most impressive thing were the xerox machines they had Xerox machines the size of like most people's bedrooms. And if you needed to print out 12,000 copies of a hundred page uh, binded manual, you could do it in like five minutes. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. I was like, I could literally do whatever I want. I could rule the world with these three Xerox machines. It was the most impressive thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so like, there you go. That's the fun part of government is like walking into a room and having access to that much power. There you go. That's how we do things. That's power. Ditto machines. (laughs) You heard it here first. It it felt like power. So I'll tell you that. So, but uh, no, uh, great show. I've I've seen a couple. If you haven't seen Umbrella Academy on Netflix, that is a fantastic show. I just got done binge watching it. What is that about? Long story short, it is a dysfunctional family where each of the children have special powers and they basically split up like nobody wants to talk to each other and then the father that adopted all of them from around the world dies and so they all come home and they find out that the end of the world is coming and that they're the only ones that could stop it and so it and i don't (laughs) want to give away too much more after that because it's a lot more than that but that's the basic premise but it's i think i know the ending i think i know how they stop it Xerox machines. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yes. If only Luther and number five had known about the Xerox machines from the beginning, it would have been Absolute a moot point. But it is, it's funny and it's exciting. It's not just like one dimensional. There's not just, oh, it's an action show or it's, it's, it's everything put together. So I highly recommend yeah, uh, the Umbrella Academy on Netflix. Well, Brad, do you want to give us just a brief kind of background of your medical background and we'll go from there? Sure. So I am a general otolaryngologist, so ear, nose, and throat doctor. I uh, went to undergrad at University of Pennsylvania, then medical school at SUNY Buffalo. I'm a New Yorker, then did my residency at Georgetown. And then after Georgetown, I joined the practice that I'm currently a part of, where I'm a partner called ENT and Allergy Associates. We're actually the largest ENT practice in the country. 
We are five times wow. bigger than the second biggest practice. So we're we're a big practice. The big Xerox machine. A lot of, we make a lot of copies. <laughs> 43. None of them HIPAA violations, though. Of course not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of course not. So we, we have yeah, like something like 43 offices, over 200 physicians, ENTs and allergists. Wow. And I'm a partner there. And my office is on Long Island. So I am in the towns called Garden City, which is right smack in the middle of Long Island, right next to the big mall, just where I always thought I would be spending my adult life near the <laughs> mall, near yeah, where I grew mall. up. But that's just... <laughs> We're 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 right in the middle, so uh, you know patients from all over the island have access to us, which is which is great. And I'm a general ear, nose, and throat doctor, so I see kids, I see adults, I see dizziness, I see hoarseness, difficulty swallowing, sinusitis, sleep apnea, all sorts of stuff. All kinds of fun things. And so you're a New Yorker, so who's your football team? NFL. So if we're going to go down this line of questioning, I think it's going to be a bit of a dead end. I don't really follow organized sports. Okay. No, okay. No, well, if anything, I watch those like CrossFit movies, which they make. So like, but that's watching people exercising. That's not really, and they call it a sport. I don't think it's a sport. I think it's just watching someone exercise next to someone else who's also exercising. <laughs> okay. So do you have a favorite CrossFit athlete? Who's the guy that's the champion? Matt Frazier. Matt Frazier. Not him. Not him. <laughs> Not him. Anyone but, but him. But well, because he just he's just always so gruff. Like he could use some PR training. Like when he's engaging with and interviews and something, like he, he could be so much more engaging than he really is and get more sponsorships. And so he just but he just comes off as like a little too gruff, a little too flat, a little too whereas some like a lot of the other athletes, I think the the female athletes, the the daughters, right? Yeah. All those Icelandic athletes. Like, they just seem so, like, they love it. They enjoy it. They're having a good time. And um, I don't know what her specialty was, but there was Julie Foucher, and she is a physician, and she was a world-class CrossFitter. So I was like, man, that you have a lot of no extra time on you have yeah. a lot going on i don't know yes. what to tell you lady so i on the guy side it's hard because matt frazier is just so dominant it's hard oh, not yeah. to like that and i think on the female side even though she hasn't competed in a couple of years is uh camille leblanc bazinet i just always every time i saw her i was like hey maybe you'll <laughs> marry me someday and no that's not gonna happen hey. so uh, <laughs> hey how are you doing through my tv while i'm sitting in my lazy boy in my underwear eating, eating an cheetos. ice cream sandwich <laughs> yeah exactly but no i also i really like the old crossfit ben if you had to pick oh, a favorite gosh. new york team let's put let's put this back on ben then since he asked this question ben what would you pick who who would your like team professional go? football you mean yeah like, sure well, well not the giants because uh, <laughs> i'm a cowboys fan so I would, it would be, it would be the Jets. Um, the only sport I don't want to touch from New York is hockey. Cause I'm a hockey guy uh, and I've seen the Islanders play here and I was like, damn New York teams. Cause they're all pretty good at hockey. So I tried, I wouldn't want any of the, I wouldn't be able to pick any New York ho hockey teams, but well, it snows like 57 feet up there a year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Buffalo hockey. is the North part of the state, right? Yeah. Well, so I went to, med school in buffalo and yeah. it is it is an eight hour drive from where i'm from it is very far you know it's like are you, ben are you in texas you're in texas uh no i'm in kansas oh 
He just likes Texas. A, he just likes yeah. Texas teams. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like driving somewhere in, te- you know, Texas, everything's just super far away because the state's yes. humongous. So, it's you know, Buffalo's basically Canada to, to a lot of <laughs> New Yorkers. Because it is. It's right next to Their accent is more similar to someone from the Midwest than it is to New Yorkers. We're part of the same state, but it's so distant. The culture's different. The culture's more like the Midwest. The only thing I really know about Buffalo is the clear and obvious based on my physique, uh, the chicken wings that you guys (laughs) made up there. So thank you. The world appreciates your contribution. And uh, 50% hot sauce, 50% butter. Yeah, I will tell you. I will tell you right now, when I'm having my STEMI, I, I will be thinking of you the entire time. And uh, I, I've actually said that during taking care of STEMIs in the ER. I was like, when I have my STEMI, people are like, don't say that. I'm like, have you ever seen me pass up a chicken wing? Like, it's <laughs> happening, all right? So let's just let's just prepare and be ready when it, when it comes down. So I have a non-sports question. What led you into ENT? Good question. So there's a huge variety in what we do. So I think you do, Tom, you do family practice, right? Correct. So one of the great things about family practice is you got you could to take care of people from birth to death, right? You know, you might, you might focus more on one than the other, but still you, you can take care of everyone, you know, three generations of the same family. And so in otolaryngology, we do that as well, right? So I might be doing a four-day-old cutting their tongue tie in the office and seeing their 80-year-old great-grandmother for dizziness and hearing loss as my next patient. So I have a you know, huge variety in age and then huge variety in the pathology, right? So I might be taking someone to the operating room for sinus surgery, which can be a very technical surgery. And then in the afternoon, kind of like what happened today, you know, might be working that person up for dizziness, which is, uh, you know, very challenging medical workup, right? The, you don't do surgical management of dizziness. I mean, you do, but the textbook maybe, but in reality, people aren't doing those surgeries very often. So, you know, huge variety in what we do. We do a lot of office procedures. We do stuff in the operating room. We work up things medically and we are the medical management and the surgical management. So it's not like cardiologist and a cardiothoracic surgeon. They have to work together. One's the medical, one's the surgical, like we're, we're it. So, you know, you're taking care of a lot of stuff from stem to stern. Interesting. Well, Tom, I'm going to do our social media shout out and I'm going to let Brad talk about his podcast as well and then we'll get into our story so if you like this show you can find us on facebook instagram twitter and youtube all at just some podcast you can find us on the web or at www.justsomepodcast.com our email if you want to be on the show or you want to just talk to us admin at justsomepodcast.com tom what else can they do to help us out well they can stop by the store and look at our merchandise on our website and while they're there they can scroll down to the just about the bottom they'll see a banner for our amazon affiliate link they can click on that before they do any shopping or put anything in their basket and while they're there they can pick up whatever they want and they won't even notice that they had us along with them anything they purchase will help give some proceeds back to the show and we would really appreciate it brad you want to talk about your podcast absolutely thank you uh i do not have merch so I'm going to need to work on that. I'm pretty impressed that you, that you guys do. That's, that, that gives a whole new level of credibility to the show when you've got your own merchandise. That's, we have stickers. My daughters yeah. love it. They're like, you have merch? I need merch. So yeah. So my podcast is called The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. And I named it that so that it would show up more often in search engine if someone looked for physician or doctor. Well played, sir. Well played. But as yes, it turns out, is... it doesn't show up in the search engine that often. So I need your downloads. Please listen to it. <laughs> so, um, it's for 
I'm a physician, so my audience is basically me. You know, I get people in front of me to answer questions that I would want to help me to be a better physician, community member, boss, you know, to know what I can do in all aspects of being a physician, uh, you know, personal and professional development. But everything that, that I cover on the show also applies to advanced practice providers. So we have some about with a PhD in health economics talking about Medicare for All and the Affordable Care Act. We've had a couple different shows with him, actually. And then we have some specialists on the show, kind of like what I'm going to be talking to, about, to you guys about today, specialists talking about what we want everyone to know about their specialty. So what every doctor or advanced practice provider should know about ophthalmology. I've had, uh, if you're a good Samaritan showing up in the scene and someone is not breathing, like, what do you do even if you're like a pathologist and you don't have your microscope on you? So what do you... <laughs> you're still a, a provider, what do you need to know in order to be most useful in that uh, scene? Because, you know, your friends and family are going to be looking at you. Look, they're not, they're choking, like do something. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about what to do if you have an adverse outcome. Like, how do you recover from that and continue practicing? So a really wide variety of, of topics. I had someone on the show recently. His name is uh, BJ Fogg. He's a, he's been my biggest whale of a, of a guest because he's just been on tons of shows that have much larger followings because he did a lot of research on habits. So how do we get our patients to adhere to their medication? Like he, he has these little like tricks that he does from, from his, from his research. He's a PhD at Stanford and just wrote a book called tiny habits. So, you know, how do you get your patients to exercise more? How do you get them to lose weight? Do all these things that we, we, we want them to do, but like there's science behind this that tells us the effective ways to do it. And as it turns out, common wisdom, common knowledge is, is wrong about a lot of this stuff. He tells us how to do it. So, so where do you find me? I'm, I'm not so good at plugging my podcast because I haven't told you how to find me. So it's Physician's Guide to Doctoring. You can find it at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. I'm on Twitter at Physician's Guide. I'm on LinkedIn. My name's Bradley Block. Just look me up. And then I have a Facebook page that's at Physician's Guide to Doctoring. I'm not on Pinterest. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on Etsy. <laughs> I'm not on Instagram. It's a podcast. So listen to it. Like that's that's, kind of, uh, that's why I'm not on any of those things. Well, we will make sure that we drop uh, all your links down in the show notes of our show so that if people are interested in, in downloading, and it sounds like a hell of a show. I mean, I well, thank you. will have to add it to my download. So there are several episodes that sound very interesting. So I was making notes. I was like, well, yeah, like things I need to be paying attention <laughs> to. Let's make sure we hear that. So, and you guys, cause you're funny. You might like, I interviewed the, um, the founder of the onion. Shut awesome. Up. Yeah. Oh my how God. To, so yep. He has a, a, a school on how to be funny. He's got like online courses and webinars. And, and I think he, he also teaches at Second City on how to, and he has a bunch of books, how to write funny. His name is Scott Digger. So we talked about how to be funny with your patients appropriately. Hmm. Ooh, see, yeah. that's the, that's the caveat I miss right there. Yeah. That, uh, yeah I say that well, and then I'm like, hmm, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> he so. talks about how to recover from a bomb. <laughs> He's like, you got to own it. You You got to own it. You got to, you got to say it. You got to like, I will stick to doctoring and looks like my comedy career is not going to work out. Like, and then you can kind of, you you know, you, you, you make yourself the joke and then the patient will feel a little better about it. And then, uh, then you can move on. So there you go. There you go. See free tip. Thank you, doc. I appreciate it. Well, so if, uh, our audience is interested in getting Tom some of those webinars for how to be funny. <laughs> uh, you know, send us some uh, money. We'll make sure that we get Tom uh, funnier. So anyway, 
Tom, you're ready to get into our story not, that you may have missed. Is it about being funny? No, but I wish I would have known about that ahead of time. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll try. Yeah, sure. All right. So story that you may have missed. By the way, Doc, he never tells me what the story is. He just wants to see if I get pissed off during the during the story. So, Tom, do you remember what? alcohol episode? The what? The alcohol episode. I remember bits and pieces of the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So, so smartphones measuring walk could detect drunkenness. There's new research out in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs. Authors want to see if whether smartphones measuring gait could tell if a person had reached an objective measure of intoxication, a, bre- a breath alcohol concentration of 0.08, uh, which is the level that people show, tend to show poor coordination. And of course, for most states, is the legal over the limit. So for this study, it was a very small study. They had 22 adults who visited the lab to consume a vodka-based drink uh, that would raise their blood alcohol concentration uh, to 0.02. And then over the next seven hours, uh, they had them walk 10 steps in a straight line with their smartphone strapped to their back. And in analyzing the data, the researchers found that 92.5% of the time, they could determine that a participant would have exceeded the legal limit of the blood alcohol concentration of 0.08. Obviously, the study does have some limitations. A person's unlikely to keep the phone strapped to their back. Changing location by carrying it and putting it in their bag or a pocket could affect the results. And of course, it's a very small proof of concept study and future research would be needed. But I did like the quote from Dr. Brian uh, Sofaletto who was the author of the study. In five years, I'd like to imagine a world in which if people go out with friends and drink at risky levels, they get an alert at the first sign of impairment and are sent strategies to help them stop drinking and protect them from high-risk events. So I thought it was kind of an interesting story, and we probably needed that night that we had the alcohol episode. But Tom, your, your thoughts? Yeah, first is there's an entire journal for alcohol and drugs, and how did we not know about that prior? Mm-hmm. Like I, Now you do. Well, now I do. And now I know where I'm applying for a job because I want to know how to get into that. Second of all, yes, we probably could have used that. However, we were sitting and doing a podcast while we were drinking. Obviously, uh, Brad has not heard that episode. Don't. I'll just save you some time. Okay. So it was it was an unmitigated disaster, which is what we were trying to prove is alcohol can sometimes cause, you know, problems. And last, I think it's pretty awesome. I think that's a great start, but I'm also one of those guys that, so where does it start and stop? Like, does the phone ring the authorities? Does it shut off my car? Like, or can you make that an option? Like, Hey, my car won't start if it thinks I'm impaired, but then it's like, what if I like fell or hurt my knee and I've just had a limp like, okay, (laughs) now am I not going to be able to drive anywhere for a week? So I, I think it's a great idea. But I, I just get weary of my phone controlling that many aspects of what I do next. Fair enough. So. Could be something right. that that's used if you have like a DUI, right? Yeah. Then like the court mandates that you have this on your phone and, you know, but you're right. It, it has to be specific enough that if you're injured, it, it's not going to lock you out of your car. <laughs> yeah, it- and I mean, it's a funny idea, but I keep thinking about it. I was thinking about that while you were saying it. I was like, well, that's great. But what if, like, I have a rock in my shoe and I kind of step funny for a second? It's going to be like, oh, this guy's toast. Mm-mm. And I'm like, oh, and I already God. have my wife calling me out on that. She's like, you're drunk. I don't need my phone being like, you're drunk. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I don't need it from you, Apple, yeah. and you. So, <laughs> yeah, that would be a problem. No. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. You're just proving my point. So yeah, I hope technology is pretty cool. And, and and like Brad said, you know, perhaps this could be akin to like the interlock devices that sometimes are placed by courts or something like that. But uh, I, oh, it's just the whole idea of my phone making a decision for me. I mean, I've seen oh, plenty yeah. of movies where that goes bad. So I'm just saying, it just seems, yeah, yeah. that's a black mirror. That's a black mirror. Episode. Black mirror. Yeah. This is a Skynet problem and I don't want to open that box. So, but uh, yeah. hopefully, hopefully someday, uh, maybe you can make it a voluntary thing. You know, like if you think I'm impaired, ask me and I have to put in a code or I don't know something. And then, there you go from there. Start doing like algebra. And if you can't do it, then you're clearly impaired. Well, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm already <laughs> already not, not liking that. So that was my least favorite was algebra out of all the math. Anyway. All right. Well, Tom, you're ready to get into our main topic and why we have Brad on the show and keeping him away from his uh, West Wing episodes. Yes, absolutely. And um, I'm actually super stoked. I was making sure I was writing down some stuff. I was like, I want to make sure I ask or we talk about this. So I am ready to dive in whenever uh, you are, Ben. Why don't you start off? Well, Brad, I guess let's start with, so what are some of the common things that, that you see in the office and is often, I'm sure, is probably referred to you from, from family practice? You know, So what are some kind of common things that you see? I know we kind of talked a little bit beforehand, so... So one thing, start with sinus problems. So a common thing that we get referred is someone coming in with sinus problems, sinus infections, sinus headaches, sinus pressure. And something that I want the listeners to take away is that there was a, a large study, retrospective study, quite a few years ago, but it's, it's panned out in my practice as well. And it's that nine out of 10 people that are referred to an otolaryngologist from primary care that have sinus pain and pressure have a primary headache and not a sinus infection. So if their chief complaint is sinus pain and pressure, so first I wanna give the caveat that you might hear my voice in your ears. This does not make this a doctor-patient relationship. I am not your physician. This is not medical advice. And uh, guys, please don't edit this part out of the show. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, because this is, unfortunately, the world we live in, this is yes. a, a liability, right? We're taking a risk yeah. here. Someone is like, oh, I thought he was giving me medical advice. I'm not. We're all, you know, the audience is providers. So whatever in information you glean from here, it's all to be taken within the context of your own medical education. So, sorry. Okay. Back to sinus yeah. headaches. So, so sinus headaches. Yeah. Most people where their chief complaint is pain and pressure, they're actually probably having some variant of a, of a headache, usually a migraine. Other complaints that sometimes go along with that might be something like post-nasal drip. Now, post-nasal drip is just this nebulous sensation where you feel mucus dripping down the back of your throat. Now, the sinuses and the nose produce about a liter to a liter and a half of mucus a day that drips down the back of your throat and you swallow it and that's normal and that's supposed to happen. That <laughs> lubricates your food. So, just because you feel that mucus might be that you're feeling mucus that's already supposed to be there. You just happen to notice it now. You're just, your attention is drawn to it. So if they're like, well, I get these sinus headaches and post-nasal drip, that's not really a great symptom indicator that they might be genuinely having a sinus infection that wouldn't benefit from say antibiotics. Now, if they have nasal obstruction and discolored drainage from their nose, now that's a different story. But if it's pain and pressure, even with nasal obstruction, and this is another point, the term congestion, I've found to be a very loaded term. It can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean I, I can't breathe through my nose because it's obstructed. It might mean I feel 
mu extra mucus in my nose, which is a different problem. Or it might be that they feel like there's mucus in their sinuses and they're calling that congestion. Now, if they feel mucus in their sinuses, that sinus pressure, that's more likely to be a sinus headache than it is a sinus infection. So it's important to be able to, to tease, you know, when they use the word congestion, they might be using it to mean a different thing than you think they mean or that you would use it to mean. So it's important to tease those things apart if they're describing that sensation. Now, migraines, because it can cause parasympathetic stimulation, can cause nasal obstruction. So you can end up with sinus pressure, a blocked nose, post-nasal drip, and actually it's all migraine. And if you have someone where it happens, you know, once a year and you're not sure and you give them antibiotics and it goes away, do they need to see their friendly neighborhood otolaryngologist? Not, I, you know, it's up to you. I, I wouldn't say. But if it's a recurring theme in their life, you know, if it's happening over and over, I think it's worth having them see an otolaryngologist, preferably when it's happening, so that we can look up their, their nose with our scope, see it, maybe get some imaging like a CAT scan. There was a study done on the balloon sinuplasty. I'm not sure if you've ever heard this procedure, but it's kind of like angioplasty, but you stick a balloon up into someone's sinus and inflate it in order to dilate the opening. And this was in our major journal. And they randomized people who are having sinus headaches to balloon procedure or a sham balloon procedure. So they thought they were having the balloon procedure, but they weren't. They just stuck a bunch of cameras up their nose and wiggled them around and told them they had a procedure. As it turns out, most people got better. Didn't matter which arm they were in. Didn't matter. They just got better. So it's being used to like relieve this pressure. And usually this pressure happens with like a storm coming. You know, it's like your patients with arthritis. They know when a storm's coming, right? Their arthritis bothers yeah. them. Well, migrainers can tell when a storm is coming a lot of the time. So they think that this change in barometric pressure is enough to like change the pressure within their sinuses. But that pressure change isn't as dramatic as like going up and down in an airplane. So that's more likely to be a variant of migraine than it is to be an actual sinus problem where you'd need to dilate the opening to the sinuses. A lot to unpack there. Yeah. No, I, but that's exactly, I was like, oh, I'm just loading questions in my head. So what's <laughs> the, the big so difference then between, say, the migraine sinus headache like you kind of described there? versus a full-fledged sinusitis as far as like symptoms that we may see? So sinusitis is, is typically going to start off with like cold-like symptoms, right? They, get, they might get a sore throat, a stuffy runny nose, a cough. So there's usually a viral prodrome. And the way I like to conceptualize it is the sinuses are constantly making mucus, pushing it out of the sinuses, a lot of ways uphill into the nose and it goes down the back of the throat. Now, if you have a cold, it causes the mucosa to swell and your mucus gets more viscous, it gets more inefficient. And in some people, the, the bacteria will just multiply and multiply. And that's what turns a viral upper respiratory tract infection into a bacterial sinus infection. So now you've got what used to be a, like a river of the mucus being produced in the sinuses and getting pushed out. And it's now become more of a stagnant pond where you've got like this, you know, gross stuff that's just percolating in your sinuses. So that might give you pressure, but it's also going to give you discolored drainage. It's also going to, you know, it might give you fever, not always that often. It should give you nasal obstruction, loss of sense of smell, cough, sore throat. So other infectious symptoms. And it usually, also timing, you can sometimes tell the difference, right? It's been going on for a couple of weeks. It's more likely to be a sinus infection. Although people can have chronic migraine too. So still don't confuse the two. 
but uh, so timing can be another piece of the puzzle. You know, it's not like there's any, and that's been looked at. Like, what if I have one major criteria and two minor criteria or two major criteria and one minor, you know, we can't use those things to like tell someone uh, whether or not reliably that they have a sinus infection. It's, it's a lot of times it's, it's gestalt, but you're going to look for other infectious symptoms that wouldn't be associated with a migraine, like runny nose, sore throat, cough, loss of smell, and sometimes pressure and sometimes not. But I've found pressure like, you know, you're doing your physical exam, you're pushing on the sinuses. That's not going to tell you, you know, that, that part of the exam, the pushing on the sinus isn't going to tell you whether or not, because I've seen plenty, plenty of patients that, that they'll push on the sinuses. I think, I feel like I can push the mucus out of my sinuses. Like I'm pushing on them and, and then I feel like stuff drains out. But like, that's your skull. That can't move so easily. You're not like squishing your skull and mucus is coming out. It's just, you know, they have these, uh, these associations. So, so yeah, I can't give you a reliable way to tell the difference between the two, but you know, some good indicators are, you know, was there some viral prodrome? Is there discolored drainage? What's the time length? And then other things like cough or sore throat. And then sometimes I have, I have sinus infection, patients come with sinus infections that just have like cough, like no other symptoms, nothing, nothing, just cough. Now that's rare, right, right? Right. But it's still like, like I'm saying, like there's no like reliable thing that you can, that you can hang your hat on. So I know this is going to probably sound really dumb, but I get this one a lot in my office is somebody will come in and of course, after 90 hours of minor inconvenience, they think they have a sinus infection almost always, by the way, I don't send them straight to ENT. So thank you. Um, (laughs) But I get this a lot and I really don't know how to answer it. And I don't know if maybe part of it is wrong, maybe I have been possibly wrong as they always automatically go to, I've had some green snot. So I keep hearing you say the word discolored. Usually in my experience, like the lighter colors are clear. Obviously I'm like, I'm not that worried about it. Is there a significant like, okay, if you see this it is probably leading down this road or is it just, if it's not clear, go a little further. So, one, a lot of bacterial sinus infections are self-limited. So just because it's a bacterial sinus infection does not mean it's not going to re- uh, resolve spontaneously. Color is unfortunately not a reliable ind- indicator. And anyone who's met any of my children can tell you that they, they'll get a cold and you know, because they sneeze and it's just a mountain of discolored snot, just, you know, yellow yeah. stuff just comes out of those, but it's a cold, right? Yeah. Like I don't, I don't give them antibiotics. It goes away in like a week or so. So yeah, a discolored drainage or, 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 you know, green, yellow is just another piece of the puzzle. But what I would say for someone who's come in after just a couple of days is, no, there's a caveat to that, right? Like I've seen people have complications of sinusitis from sinus infections that have been present for, so like I had a cold and then two days later, they've got orbital cellulitis from a sinus infection and their vision's being threatened. And, you know, we put them on antibiotics and steroids and, you know, as long as they are getting better quickly and the ophthalmologist isn't like, we need to do something now, there's pressure on the optic nerve, then we don't have to take them to the operating room, but they do need to be admitted to the hospital and followed and very closely. So time, again, it's just another piece of the puzzle, but not reliable. None of these things is singularly reliable. But yeah, if it's discolored, it's more likely to be a sinus infection, but it doesn't mean that it is a sinus infection. Good, because that's pretty much the reasoning I've been saying. But then I heard you say discolored a couple of times. I was like, wait yeah. a second. Have I? Uh, have no, I I'm, I'm saying like differentiating <laughs> a, a migraine from ah. uh, a sinus infection. Differentiating a cold from a sinus infection is, is different. And that we're not reliable at. I've okay. seen plenty of patients that have come in to see me for the same thing. 
and I'll be like, this is, this is definitely a cold. And then I'll scope them because I, we have that. It's easy, you have that. Easy yeah. To do, <laughs> yeah, it's easy to do in the office for us. And we take a look and then, you know, it's like, oh, I was about to tell you that you got a cold and lo and behold, you're right. It's a sinus infection. So I, I'm not, even though this is what I do a lot of the time, you know, I, it's really hard to tease those things apart. But I think a good rule of thumb would be like, give it a week as long as they're not in like, you're not concerned about them developing some complication. They don't have a ton of comorbidities. Just give it a week because a lot of sinus infections do resolve spontaneously. Not everything needs antibiotics. And if after a week they're not cured, but they're doing better, well, then their trajectory is that they're headed in the right direction. But if they're getting better and then they get worse, well, that tells me that, they're, that they had the viral prodrome, the virus is making its way out. And now a sinus infection has probably settled its, its way in. And I think personally, that conversation is a little bit easier the longer that you're seeing patients as far as like the length of time that you've had that patient. You know, when I first got out and was in seeing patients in practice, you know, it was very hard to tell patients they had a viral infection because it, we live in a pill-based society and, and we've discussed that on our show before multiple times. But, you know, now, seven years out, I have the trust of my patients where I, if I go in and I look at them and I say, no, I think this is viral. They're like, okay, well, it's viral. And then they're happy with that. But yeah, it's an easier conversation to have over time, I think. I've had patients tell me, you know why I come to you? I come to you because you never give me antibiotics. Like, okay. <laughs> sure. All right. But I mean, they're, what they're looking for is like more precision, right? Like mm-hmm. where, because I don't have to, because I can scope them. I I don't have to guess as right. much. Nobody bats a thousand, certainly. I've had patients that I'm like, no, you know, and, and or they might come and it's still viral and then it converts to bacterial. But what I like to do is I like to give them a, a specific OTC regimen. So like they're coming in because they're miserable, right? And they want to feel better. Right. Yes, fine. If I give you augmentin, you're still going to have a viral respiratory tract infection and now you're also going to have diarrhea. So rather than that, why don't we just go through what over-the-counters you usually use and which ones I recommend that you use? Like, and because I, I always, I disassemble those, uh, like I deconstruct those cocktail medications. Well, I use DayQuil and NyQuil. Well, why'd you choose those? Well, because it was daytime and, and then it was nighttime. So <laughs> I was like, okay, well, you know, what of your symptoms is the worst? Oh, well, right now it's my sore throat. Okay, great. Sore throat. What do we do for that? What do we take? Well, you can use chlorseptic. You can use NSAIDs. Here's the dosing that you can do of NSAIDs to make sure that you're getting maximal relief. Your nose isn't really bothering you right now, so you don't need any of those other medicines. You know, if you're having trouble sleeping, you can throw a little Benadryl in, in there. And I always make the distinction of pseudoephedrine. Make sure that they're using pseudoephedrine instead of phenylephrine because in the United States, they passed a law that says that the pharmacist has to keep uh, pseudoephedrine so that we don't, because that's how they beat meth, right? Congress was like, we don't have a meth problem anymore in the yes. United States because we put it, <laughs> we, we had the pharmacists keep track, even though they don't have a mandate in, in all the states that they have to actually have anything but a written record. So you can just go from store to store, but, you know, make, make sure that they know that they should take uh, pseudoephedrine instead of phenylephrine because it's a lot more effective for drying up the nose, but don't take it before bed because then it's going to give you insomnia and don't take it if you have any prostate problems because it's going to put you in urinary retention and don't take it if you have hypertension because, okay, sorry. So, no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like just letting them go. Let's, I was like, yeah, let's, let's just lay, lay it out, bro. <laughs> 
first of all, thank you because sinus is one of the big things, but obviously one of the big monsters in the room uh, as a newer NP and working in family. Like you said, I see a lot of children, earwax. ears, earwax, ear pain, ear infection, like the whole gamut. So I guess my, my three big things and specifically for pediatric versus adult is one, what are some tips for helping people clear earwax when they all have heard, don't ever put a Q-tip in your ear. But so then they're like, well, how do I get it out? And second, differentiating redness on the TM for an ear infection versus irritation in a pediatric patient. Because every parent is just sure that their kid has an ear infection and that they need amoxicillin. And sometimes I'm like, I don't think it's an ear infection, but I can't say it's not. And as a new family nurse practitioner, I tend to be proactive and if i don't know i'm going to err on the side of caution which i don't think is a bad guess but i also since i am speaking to an expert what what things should i be looking for to make my practice better okay so i actually lecture their pediatric residents at my hospital and so some of them rotate with me and i give them like two lectures a year one on ears and one on pediatric head and neck infections so i've spoken to pediatricians frequently about this. And the first is, it's just hard. It's hard. A good ear exam on a kid is hard. Now, you have the benefit of being able to see adults as well. So that just helps you with your chops, right? Like just recognizing what a normal ear looks like in someone that isn't screaming and wiggling so that you (laughs) just get accustomed to normal ears and normal ears and normal ears. Number one is make sure that you have a otoscope that is fully charged, has a light bulb that isn't dim, in that you're using the largest speculum you can. And the reason is because, not because you want to get the best view of the drum, that's advantageous, but the largest speculum is also going to let the most light in. So the more light, part of the problem, especially with newborns, is you got to use that little three millimeter speculum to be able to see and barely any light gets through. So it's, it's really hard to see something that at the end of a narrow tunnel with a dim light. Yeah. So make sure you're using the biggest speculum, make sure that your otoscope is fully charged and make sure that the bulb isn't dim. So make sure your equipment is good. So that's the key to a good ear exam. When you're trying to differentiate between like, is it just red or isn't, that's hard. I, I, I don't really have a good answer for that other than having looked at like hundreds of thousands of ears <laughs> because sometimes the kid's screaming and what's going to happen? Per, you know, the veins in their face are dilating, including the ones on their eardrum. So their eardrum looks red. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is an an ear infection. It's just, I I really don't have any tips, except if you can get a tympanometer. So a tympanometer is going to tell you about the eardrum movement. It's not a hard piece of equipment to learn how to use. And I mean, I'm not sure how billing works for you in your state or your practice or, you know, the degree, but generally it pays for itself, depending, you know, how many people you see anywhere from six months to a year, it'll, it'll pay for itself. It's not a lucrative procedure. You know, you might get like 15 bucks for doing a tympanogram, but it's going to take a lot of guesswork out because if the eardrum is moving normally, then there's no ear infection, right? Because the eardrums, there's not, no fluid. There's no fluid behind the eardrum. How could it be moving normally? Or if it's retracted, maybe they had fluid, it's resolving. So generally it's going to be flat. Like the, it's called a B tympanogram, the eardrum. So what, it, what a tympanometer does is it puts, it's like a standardized way of doing a pneumatic otoscopy. So instead of like, you know, squeezing that little bulb and seeing if you can see their eardrum moving, 
you know, you're, you don't have to be looking at the eardrum. You just put the tympanometer in, the tip seals with their drum, it puts a little bit of pressure in, and the eardrum is going to move. And then it gives you a reading on that. So you're going to be able to glean from that, is there fluid or is there not? Although sometimes with a bulging drum, it's going to move, it's going to look, it's going to look a little different. So you, ne you need to be able to interpret those results. You also need to be good enough at the exam to know when the thing isn't working. Because it certainly happened to me from a time to time where it's told me that the eardrum is not moving and I'm looking at it and I'm like, what the hell? This is, no, this is a normal eardrum. This is just like, I'm trying to check my work just to make sure I'm not missing something. Or it's like a follow-up on someone that had maybe a perforation or something like that. And I'm just, I'm doing that and it might not be reliable. But what's going to happen is your ear exam is going to get better because you've got this thing that's double checking your work and it's <laughs> going to tell you you're wrong. And then you're going to take another look at the ear and go home. Oh yeah. Okay. That's what just the screaming kid with, although if they're screaming, sometimes that interferes with the test. So, you know, there's, this is just, it's like having another uh, voice in the argument. It's like having another piece of the puzzle, like this, this tympanometer. So that's my advice is if you can get one of those, if you're, if you're someone that sees a lot of kids, it's going to take a lot of the guesswork out. The older kids, I mean, you can do a, um, a tuning fork test, right? And it'll get louder on the side that has fluid, but they've got to be a reliable kid, right? You're not, you're the, the earliest you can ask that is like six years old, I think. Yeah, I can see so those that. are the kids that are already like not having as many ear infections, right? Peak is like two to four and they're not going to be reliable enough at that age. And just one quick follow up because I see Ben, he, he's getting ready. But the next inevitable down that road is they're like, well, does he need tubes? And that I'll be honest. My question, so. Yeah, I would say to be fair, I honestly go, look, we're not at the if I think we're at the point I'm referring then that's one thing. But I usually just go, I'm going to just let the ENT specialist <laughs> determine that. I, I don't ever tell someone like, oh, he, he definitely, I've never said that. Is there a certain, and again, I don't, I don't want specific criteria because hard and fast rules rarely work, but is there a general rule of thumb for family nurse practitioners that you want us to know before we refer that child or patient we think may need a PE tube to you? Like, is there a criteria we should really be trying to use before we, we ship them to you? I mean, I can give you the, the American Academy of Otolaryngology guidelines and, and we'll just, I'll just jump off from there. It's three infections in a six month period or four infections in a year, and then an abnormal exam when we see them. So what happens is sometimes there, it might be a situation like you described, Tom, where you might be overcalling it because it's just, it's a hard diagnosis to make. And so we need to see them. I also have the advantage of having an audiologist in my office that does a hearing test on them. So I have like a whole lot more information at my disposal when I'm making, like I might be looking in there and be like, oh yeah, that looks fine. And then they come back with a conductive hearing loss in the hearing test. I'm like, oh, looks like I was wrong. And then, you know, and then I, I change my, my decision. So I, mean, I think it's important to have some humility, right? Uh, all of us when, when we're doing an exam that, that we know is challenging for even for me who does this all the time. So, so it's three infections in six months and four in a year, but that's, that's like my minimum. That's my minimum, unless they have like a speech delay. More often, I'll do it for fluid that doesn't go away. So if you see a kid that has an ear infection, you see them a couple weeks later, you make sure that the fluid's gone. If the fluid's gone, fine. If the fluid's not gone, maybe wait a little longer, another month. And then if it still hasn't gone away, then, then send them over to us because I'm much more likely to do tubes in someone where the fluid has failed to resolve than for recurring infections. Because a lot of times the recurring infections happen in people that the fluid fails to resolve. So they're getting infection, the fluid's on its way out, and then they get another infection. And then the fluid's on its way out, and then they get another infection. So the fluid never really 
really goes away. So that's to me more of an indication than the recurring infections because if they have a re if they have like a lot of infections, but the fluid goes away like that, well that tells me that their eustachian tubes function pretty well, and they're not likely to actually have that many infections because why would they? Because their eustachian tubes work really well. So it's more going to be fluid that fails to resolve than recurring infections. But the number that you're looking for is three and six months or four in a year. Then then you're going to refer to us. And I appreciate you putting it that way. You're you're sending to us not to get tubes. You're sending us for an evaluation. So I'd much rather you send me too many patients than too few, right? Because if you're sending too few, then we're missing patients that should would be benefiting from tubes. If you're sending too many, then all you're doing is you're reassuring yourself and the family that you're doing the right thing by just watching. Now, is there a difference in treating an acutotitis media once they have tubes in? Like, do we still do oral antibiotics? Do you do drops instead of antibiotics? What's the difference on that? If they have tubes, drainage from the ear is treated with drops because now you have a conduit to get something that doesn't have systemic side effects directly to the site of infection. So if there's drainage from the tubes, you want to treat them with drops. I've, I've heard some debate about this, right? Is it an ear infection? Like sometimes you'll just have a kid who's super snotty and some of that mucus is just taking the path of least resistance. So it goes up the eustachian tube, out the tube out, and out the ear tube. So it's not technically an infection or is it like, of course there is, there's drainage from the ear. Of course it's an infection. I've heard fellowship trained pediatric otolaryngologists argue both sides of that. So, but either way, it doesn't matter. There's drainage from the ear, put them on drops, get rid of the drainage. So yeah, you don't necessarily need oral antibiotics unless they've, they've, they're having some complication. You know, there's some other reason you might want to put them on oral antibiotics, but if it's just uncomplicated drainage from the tube, it almost always goes away with drops. You just don't want to use cortisporin. Don't use polymyxin neomycin because neomycin is ototoxic. It has to be ofloxacin, ciprofloxacin, one of the quinolones. It can't be neomycin. Now, is that with the tubes or like, so like an otitis external, like a swimmer's ear, you can, do you still use the neomycin there or? Yeah, you can use that as long as they have an intact drum. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. But if you're not sure, then then don't put them on neomycin. Like I've I've seen some people where they end up with an otitis media. It drains into the ear canal, macerates the skin, leads to an otitis externa. So now they've got otitis media and otitis externa. But if you can't see the drum to be able to tell that there's no perf, then you're you're not going to want to put them on neomycin. My last big ear question. I'll turn back over to you, Tom. Where the hell did the numbing uh, numbing eardrops go, and will they ever come back? <laughs> no. They're gone. The benzocaine, antipyrene drops. Yeah, yes. I think those have been gone for like five or 10 years. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's about five years. I used to write them when I first got out and parents loved so, them and now it's, yeah. So one of the reasons that they're gone, I think, I don't know, I wasn't part of the legislation on that. I didn't, part of the FDA. But I think because if you're using those drops, then you've missed the diagnosis. Like there's never a circumstance where I've been like, oh man, I wish I had those drops. Because... You want, you know, if you have otitis externa, you need to be using like, and they're in a lot of pain. Yeah, fine. Have some steroid containing antibiotic drop so that it treats the inflammation and, uh, and the swelling and the infection. But a lot of times earaches. So let's get into something else that I, that I want you guys to be aware of. Earaches in the setting of a normal exam. So I'm seeing something I'm seeing a ton of right now, TMJ. So people are coming in with ear pain, feeling a fullness in their ear, feeling a fluid in their ear. They feel like they might've even lost some hearing. Now we can test it. Like I have the advantage of being able to test them for that, right? So we get a hearing test, examine them. And it turns out they're grinding their teeth. Why are they grinding their teeth? Well, cause we're in the middle of the biggest pandemic that the world has seen in a hundred years, right? So, yeah. you know, people are out of work, people are sick, people are scared for so many different 
appropriate reasons. And so what are they doing? They're grinding their teeth. They grind their teeth, they end up with TMJ, which causes ear pain, and they end up in my exam room. So that's always something to keep in mind. You want to put your hand, you know, if you look in the ear and you're like, this looks like a normal exam. What are they talking about? Put your fingers over their TMJ and have them open their, close their mouth a couple of times. You know, the TMJ and the ear canal share a common wall. That's actually one of the reasons I think you were going to ask about the earwax thing. One of the reasons that wax extrudes by itself is because the movement of the jaw causes the wax to kind of rifle its way out of the ear canal. Hmm. So, um, interesting. Yeah. So chewing is what moves the canal wall, which moves the wax out. So don't mess with the ear. I'll take that as a segue to talk about earwax. Uh, everyone's favorite subject, my favorite subject. But one of my favorite things to see in the office, oddly enough, it's just so cathartic. They're like, I can't hear it. And you're like, okay. And then you're like, oh, I can hear again. It's a miracle. You're yes. amazing. And it's just like, you know, you just flicked a little wax out because, you know, very, uh, very fulfilling visit for everybody. So, so yeah, so the, the teaching is don't, you know, don't put anything in the ear that's bigger than your elbow. Okay, fine. What I tell people is clean your ear like you clean your bottom. Just wipe the outside. Don't I was say, I, how am I going to get toilet paper in there? <laughs> yeah. like, where, where are we going with this? <laughs> you're, just, you're just, yeah, you're just wiping the outside because your body has a system for making wax and pushing it out. It makes it, pushes it out, makes it, pushes it out. If you mess with that system, one of a couple of things is going to happen. Either you're going to push it in, you're going to end up with impacted wax. You could scratch your ear canal. You could puncture the drum, although that's pretty rare. Or you could be very successful at it. You strip away all the wax, and now your ear canal is really either itchy because it's dry or susceptible to infection because wax is bacteriostatic and a waterproofing agent for the canal skin. So you've stripped that away, and now you get swimmer's ear. And swimmer's ear is a painful skin infection, not what most people think it is, which is my ears clogged and I can't hear. No, that's just earwax. Swimmer's ear is a painful, you know, you guys know, otitis externa, it's a painful skin infection. So don't use Q-tips because it's going to put you at risk for otitis externa, among those other things that I mentioned. So just leave it alone. And when you're washing your face, take a little swipe at your ear. If there's a big glob of wax, then you'll get it. And if not, leave them alone. Same thing, same goes for your kids. Leave them alone. So in our office, we used to use the, like the water pick. That's the way we used to use. And then about a year ago, I switched to the elephant ear, which is like the spray bottle that has the plastic catheter on it. And that's so much easier. Uh, it yeah. works a hundred times better. But what's your kind of go-to for uh, impacted wax? So, I mean, I, we have the advantage of having a lot of toys at our disposal, right? right. Like I have a microscope. I have loops that I use, like I use my OR loops in the office for examining people. So sometimes I'll use my loops. I've got suctions, I've got curettes, I've got forceps, you know, and, and really depending on the, the, I see it so often that like you'll look at wax and you'll be like, that uh, looks like the curette. Or like I'll, I'll loosen it off the canal wall with the curette and then grab it with the forceps. Or I'll use the suction and if there's a little tenacious stuff on the drum, then I might irrigate it out afterwards as well. Like, you know, you end up a lot of tools. So it really depends on the tolerance of the patient, the texture of the wax, the shape of the ear canal. So it depends on uh, a lot of those things. But sometimes even I struggle with wax. Like I'll have someone that's like, you know, in my chair for a long time as I'm like wrestling with it. I'll end up being a sweaty mess afterwards from earwax. <laughs> so you're wrestling that wax. Like, yeah. yeah, it happens. I just had this funny story because we have curettes and, and elephant ears at our practice and i just imagine brad coming in here and be like what are you a caveman like <laughs> this is all you have to work with like how am i going to remove wax with an elephant ear and a curette i'm like no but the curette i mean you can you can kind of like get around it and scoop it out but it's i think it also depends on which otoscope head you have 
there's an otoscope head that's called an operative head that has a little um, like magnifying glass on it. And that's the only thing. So you can get your instrument around it a little better. I prefer that one, but it also, rather than the one with the little window that you swing to the side and stick your instrument through, yeah. I, I think that's a little more restricting. I mean, you can also try using like a headlight to look in the ear so that you're just looking right at it. That, then, that way you're using both eyes. So you have depth perception. When you're using one eye to look down an otoscope, you don't have depth perception. So it's a little, makes it a little harder. That makes sense. Tom, anything else on ears? I, I, I know we're kind of getting toward the end, but I wanted to make sure we hit on dizziness because that's everybody. Dizziness, yes. I was hoping you would talk about yes. that. It, but Tom, do you have anything else for ears before we jump into that? No, not on ears. So dizziness. We all dizziness. hate dizziness. Oh, God, I hate 97 dizziness. seven different things. So what, what, let, let's talk dizziness. Okay. So first, a little primer on how the how the labyrinth works, the membranous labyrinth, right? Uh, in the semicircular canals. So an easier way to conceptualize how they work is they give you information about rotation. So if you're turning your head like you're saying no, or you're turning your head like you're nodding yes, or you're turning your head, I don't know how to describe it, but like kind of like tilting your head from side to side. Those are the three dimensions that your semicircular canals are giving your brain about your head movement. And vertigo is not a diagnosis. Vertigo is a sensation. Vertigo is the subjective sensation of room spinning. So if you tell your patient that they have vertigo, that's tantamount to telling them that they have a stomach ache. Like, <laughs> they know, my stomach hurts. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> I know. So a lot of times what people think, I think when they're saying that the patient has vertigo is they think that they have benign proxismal positional vertigo. So in benign proxismal positional vertigo, classically, Classically, what happens is they lie down and they turn to one side and they feel the room spinning around them anywhere from a couple of seconds to a minute. It can happen with bending over, but it's often it happens with bending over, but classically it's lying down and turning to the side. Sometimes when people hear like, oh, it happens when I stand up and they think, oh, it's positional and the patient's dizzy, so it's positional vertigo. No, that sounds more like autonomic dysfunction than dizziness if they're, if they're like, you know, maybe they're beta blockers. I don't know, a lot of things, the POT syndrome, there are a lot of things that can cause dizziness there. But within the world of otolaryngology, there are really only a finite number of disorders. There's benign proxismal positional vertigo that we just mentioned, and you diagnose that with a Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver or some modification thereof, because that, that's really for the posterior semicircular canal. And we really don't need to get into the weeds with this because if you think they have benign proxismal positional vertigo, just send them over to us, right? And, and then we'll be able to diagnose it and treat it. It's one of my favorite things. I, it's actually one of the reasons I, I like dizziness if it's that diagnosis. A lot of times dizziness is just, it's hard to know who to send them to, right? Oh yeah. But I would say if it's room spinning, then we're a good start but it has to be genuine room spinning. If it's like, well, I'm off, off balance. I don't feel, I'm kind of foggy. I'm, you know, that's much less likely. So there's benign proxismal positional vertigo. Then there's Meniere's disease. And Meniere's disease is another that will give you true vertigo. So room spinning, it typically lasts for hours at a time and is associated with low frequency hearing loss, ear fullness, and a roaring sound. But it doesn't have to be all of those at the same time, but generally at least two of them to get a diagnosis of Meniere's disease. But again, that's room spinning, or it could be vestibular neuritis. And vestibular neuritis, you'll end up with anywhere from hours to days of room spinning. Mm. And this is really debilitating. And the only thing that'll make them feel better is typically benzos. And that typically gets more of a workup too, because like, those patients just, they can't get out of bed. Because it's just, imagine feeling the room is spinning, 
for days. It's horrible. And then afterwards, they end up with fatigue of their semicircular canals. So they feel off balance because now the thing that's supposed to be telling them that when their head is moving isn't. So they're just off and it can be really debilitating for months hmm. if they had a severe enough episode. So that's, that's just a quick primer on otologic causes of dizziness. It's important to, to really get the history of, you know, does it happen when they lie down and turn to the side or, or even lie down at all? happened with bending over and is it true vertigo so that's bppv and then if it's there's other ear symptoms associated with it a few hours it's meniers and then labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis are similar except labyrinthitis is associated with hearing loss as well so they lost hearing and they are are experiencing vertigo and those things we should definitely be involved in in you know we should be involved in the care of all of those things and certainly the sooner the better lead me to one kind of final question before we start wrapping things up then so what are some Definite big things that, from a family practice standpoint, we need to be getting an ENT involved as soon as we can. Don't let hoarseness go for too long. I mean, a lot of times it's not laryngeal cancer, but it can be very easily, and it's pretty easy to diagnose. You know, when we scope them. Uh, so if they have persistent hoarseness for more than a couple of weeks, you want to send that over. You know, firm neck. You know, I'm thinking of the cancer stuff, right? Like right. any any firm neck mass, change in their voice, those types of things. You want to send a, send to us sooner rather than later. You know, it could be a parotid, it could be a lymph node, you know, basic tongue cancer, tonsil cancer, those will sometimes present as neck masses because it's already metastasized to the neck. Hmm. So if you want to try antibiotics first because you think it might be infection, fine. But if it doesn't respond, don't sit on that. Send that over. Well, one of the things that I was going to ask, and I'm really glad Ben brought this up, is because in my area, there might be stuff. I try to take care of what I can in the office. But I also know my limitations, and I'm like, nope, you got to go to ENT. But it is very difficult for us to get our patients into ENTs. Like sometimes there's a wait. So that's why I think I'm being super intent. And I hear you say stuff like send them over sooner than later. I'm like, oh, I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> but this may not be something. So we don't have that problem in New York. I mean, yeah. We just I have, so there are a lot of us. So uh, access to care is great. So assuming that you're in a more rural area, what are some things that I might be able to do to help you out when you see the patient? Like, is there a CT of the neck you went done? Like, what things could we possibly do in the office to set this patient up for success when they finally get to see you? Or just send them to you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. That's a tough one because, like, you really need tissue to make a diagnosis. I mean, you're going to want to get a CAT scan of the neck and chest, they may end up needing a PET scan. You know, we're going we're gonna to want to get tissue. And truth be told, I, I actually don't manage cancer anymore. I send that to the act. Part of, one of the advantages of being in, in New York is I have access, easy access to world-class academic institutions, right? I'll send them over to Mount Sinai or Columbia Cornell or NYU or, you know, like where, the, where these guys just do head and neck cancer. Like that's all they do all day long. So rather than me dabbling in it, I will send someone over to that. So I, I don't know if I should really uh, weigh in on things that I, I don't really, aren't really part of my practice anymore. I would say there's, you know, there's things that we discussed. If you want to get a CAT scan of the sinuses without contrast, if you're sure, if you're not sure, is it a migraine? Is it a sinus infection? Then a CAT scan of the sinuses without contrast would be helpful for making that distinction. I'm trying to think of other things that would help well, already that's super helpful because that is one of those, especially this time of year, getting ready to come up are people that I am just sure 
that I, this is what I have. And I'm like looking at them. I'm looking at their symptoms. I'm like, no, none of this is really fitting yeah. the sinus infection, but it's, it's been recurrent. So I don't want to not treat them, but I want to make sure I get the right treatment. So yeah. at this point I might be a little more willing to go, let's go with the CT of your head and sinuses and let's, let's see what, what we can find out. So but that could be a little hairy too, because sometimes like if you're trying to just make a distinction between a cold and a sinus infection, like, they're going to end up with a lot of mucosal thickening in their sinuses on a CAT scan a lot of the time, which might lead you to believe that they're actually having a sinus problem, uh, like a bacterial sinus infection, whereas they're not. So, you know, sometimes you'll end up with some abnormalities on the CAT scan that will be called out by the radiologist, but I might look at it and go, no, this is actually more of a variant of normal because the mucosal thickening isn't that, you know, there are no air fluid levels, which tells me that there's no actual pus in the sinus it's just mucosal thickening and it's really not that bad mucosal thickening so this is probably just the variant of normal so you know being able to in interpret those within the context of the symptoms is also uh is also important i mean it seems like you're hamstrung in that situation i don't i don't really have a great well, answer to that but but yeah if you're going to send them over getting the cat scan first might be might be helpful but if they're going to scope them you know maybe it, it's not the right time it's well, you know it's, it's hard to tell and again, sometimes I don't have the luxury and I'm, I'm sure Ben's in a similar position. I don't always have the luxury of, well, I'll just send you to ENT. ENT is yeah. going to be like, well, did you do this, this, and this first? Because they, they're overwhelmed as well. So yeah. uh, if, if that's something I can do, and also on top of it, I like that you basically side indirectly stuck to radiology there. Like, ha, you guys don't know. <laughs> like, get off that radiology. Could be this clinically correlate that. Yeah, I got it. So well, they go. say that with the years too. Like, they're like, well, yeah, there's fluid in the mastoids. And then I get called, this patient has mastoiditis. Mastoiditis is a clinical diagnosis. Like, they're going to have, like, their ear is going to be proptotic and sticking out. There's going to be swelling and redness behind it. Like, you know, tenderness over the mastoid. It's not just fluid in the mastoid because you have a cold. You'll have some, it's kind of like mm -hmm. mucosal thickening in the sinuses. You have some fluid in the mastoid, but they have to call it because it's not totally normal. They have to read what they're seeing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the, in, that is the diagnosis. Yes, that's always fun a couple of times as a new nurse practitioner when you're like, what? <laughs> you're like, that, that's not what I was expecting when you guys gave me this call. So that's always a fun, fun day for the new NP. Well, how about this? What's the uh, what's the weirdest foreign body you've pulled out of an ears or a nose? So uh, uh, one that's common, more common than people would think, bits of couch cushion. So kids will take like, you got like me. unzip, <laughs> unzip the couch like cushion, take a little of the foam and stick it up their nose. Huh. And I, it stinks like death. It's horrible. Oh, I bet. It is such a horrible smell. It is. Yeah, it's terrible. Cushion, it's terrible. cushion with a million farts through it, and you yeah. just stuffed it up your nose. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, kids Kids do funny things. I would not have. I was expecting Legos. Yeah, that's or, what I was like. Yeah, like. Uh, oh, yeah, beads but, and bugs. Yeah, exactly. Stuff but like that out. Yeah. Couch cushion was not on my <laughs> list of things I was expecting you to say. So you can flush a lot of things out of the ear, like a lot of foreign bodies out of the ear. But please, if you see a bug, don't flush it out of the ear. Just well, the, what do we do? They have the, their little legs hang onto the ear canal. Uh. And it makes it, you got to be able to like grab them and they inevitably like fall apart. Like you need a good look and a good instrument. And sometimes, you know, if, you, if you're trying to irrigate it out, it'll irritate the canal skin. It'll make it swell. It'll make it more tender. It'll make it harder to get it out. So bugs, you got to be precise about, but other things, a lot of times you can, you can flush them out of the, uh, 
honestly, that's a great like next time yeah. I was gonna be like, I think there's something here. I'm gonna be like, it's not a bug because you don't flush <laughs> bugs. Like that's Tom's rule of thumb. He's an ENT expert in the office now because he knows don't flush bugs. Hashtag so, <laughs> don't flush bugs. But if you don't have access to an old oncologist and you don't have I mean, I, I'm not giving you a good solution other than send it to your friendly neighborhood ENT. I don't know what the solution is, but I know it's not flush their ear. So I will figure it out from there. <laughs> All right. So we'll get into our final segment so that Brad can uh, can get on with his evening. So, Brad, we do a segment with every guest on our show, and it's a segment that we call Five Questions. Join us on a journey into the inner psyche of our guest as we ask five, 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 five. questions. He looks apprehensive, so I'm just saying. Not bad. If it has anything to do with professional sports, I'm... No, no, no. So basically, I I don't know if you ever watched Inside the Actor's Studio with uh, James Lipton. So he used to ask the same 10 questions to every guest. And so that's kind of what it's homage to that. So we ask the same five questions to every guest, and it just kind of gives us an idea of into your inner psyche. So... (laughs) It's it's fun. Uh, So I ask the questions... Peanut butter and a jump rope. Well, there you go. See, See I love this game already. So <laughs> go. So basically, I ask the questions and Tom cracks jokes about strangers. So it works. So, <laughs> question one, Brad, what is your favorite medical word? Sphincter. Ooh, the classic. Yeah. yeah. Good one. I I mean, like, that's, there's like a Wayne's World reference in there. Exactly. Somewhere. Asphincter says what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't go wrong with that. I probably said that a million times in my life. So it's a good one. All right. Question two. If you could do any job in the world other than what you currently do, what would it be? I think maybe architect. Yeah. It's not a funny answer. It's not an no, exciting no, answer. Good. It's not even that interesting an answer. But like if I did do it all over again, what would I do? Like, you know, space relations and you know, there's some creativity involved in that. You got to be able to work with other people. Not that I'm the best at that, but, um, you know, team building and, and things like that. So there's a social aspect to it. I think, uh, I think architect would be kind of cool. Cause I mean, especially if you design something, yeah. And then you like drive by it like 10 years later, like that was my, like, I yeah. came up with that. I could see like, that. um, the guy who designed the, like the museum in Spain, uh, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright, like some of the stuff like an architect can do is just fantastic oh, yeah. though. Every time I hear the word architect, I think of George Costanza. So that's a problem. And then the second thing was, I was really hoping you were going to say professional football punter, like something like that. Like, oh, you got me. I wasn't expecting that. So um, no, it's a, another academic type job that's cerebral and not that exciting. Not like, a, you know, an acrobat. I would be in Cirque du Soleil. I would be a professional gambler. I would be, I don't know, what are all the exciting things? A professional gambler. would just not have the wherewithal If you ever ever want to go to a casino, Brad, you let me know. Because (laughs) if there's one thing I know how to do is win just enough to make the pit bosses suspicious, and then they come over to the table, and then it makes all my friends really nervous. So, of course, I'm drunk, so I don't care at that point. But it's a great time for me. So, if you're ready, you Uh. let me know. So <laughs> I actually had on my show, Blake Eastman, he started the first brick and mortar poker school. We talked about nonverbal communication 
now that we're all, all either over telehealth or behind the mask. So I actually had him. He's wow. a professional a, poker player. Another episode I'm going to have to listen to. Interview. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be listening to I'm going to be like Ben listening to your, your show, <laughs> I think. I hope, I hope I see those downloads spike. I, oh, you, you, hopefully you will. <laughs> I'll know who's listening. There you go. Yeah. All right, Brad. Question three. I want you to think back to your first car. Was it a stylish ride or a rolling turd? Rolling turd. You know, it was like my parents' <laughs> old car. Although the the first car that I ever bought, Pontiac Firebird. Hey, oh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Did you? What year? Two thousand one. The last year. Two thousand one. The last year they made it. Like it wasn't like T tops or anything like that. It was it was a convertible, <laughs> and it was when I was a resident. So I was so miserable that uh, the only pleasure I got during my day was the drive to drive to and from the hospital. <laughs> so I got a convertible so I could drive to and from the hospital with the top down. And it was, you know, the, the best part of my day. It's awesome. And I, I legit was, was going to say T-tops, T-tops. I was legit. That was like the next question out of my head. And then you took yeah, it out. No, so no like, yeah. sorry. No T-tops. It was <laughs> no turning radius. It was all hood and and windshield. So it was like so there was like it was a huge car, but there was no room for people. It was completely fuel efficient. It was like two inches off the ground. So if it snowed, I was immobile. It was the worst decision for a vehicle, especially as a resident. But it was there, fun. There it is. So that's the end. It's hard to make fun of that because he started off with nah, it was a turd. I'm like, no. Oh. My favorites when they're like, no, it was great. It was an eighty-eight Caprice classic. I'm like, no. Nah. You're wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. This is how it goes down. All right, Brad. Question four. If your house is on fire, everyone, including your pets, are safe. Other than pictures, what's the one thing you want to get out of your house? My laptop. It's got all my podcast interviews on it. There you go. See, that's the to, podcast. Because right I'm an idiot. I don't have my stuff in the cloud. It's just on my <laughs> laptop. So if my laptop craps out, I'm, uh, I, I'm a host. You know, I understand. I edit this show, and yeah, that's where all my stuff's on my laptop. So I need to back it up into the cloud somewhere, but I haven't. Got to have priorities. I'm not pictures. Well, pictures are all in the cloud, right? All the pictures of my kids and stuff. That's everybody's answers. We had to take that answer off the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything else of value in my my house that I can think of. Like (laughs) the laptop. That's good. All right. Question five, Brad. You have $9.18 in your pocket. You're at a convenience store. What all do you buy? This is crunch time, Brad. <laughs> crunch time. <laughs> I need some context. Like, what time of day is it? Am I at a no, road trip? Whatever. Am I going no, somewhere? No. I don't you get anything. $9.18. Is, it, is, it like, um, is this like 20 years ago? I'm in college. Nope. It's the middle nope. of the night. I'm really hungry. You're, tomorrow. Yes. Tomorrow. 2020. Tomorrow. Oh, God. I'm so boring. It's going to be like chocolate chip cookies and a coffee or something like uh, hey no that's that is a go-to i can i know look compared to some of the answers we get where it's i want a protein water and some kale i'm like no (laughs) you are done madam get off my show no i can deal uh how do you take your coffee here's another i want to hear how do i take my coffee uh so okay now you're gonna get a whole thing my my wife and i are kind of coffee snobs we we actually cold brew our coffee at home and then sweeten it with a little maple syrup and whole milk. I kind, I, I want to do that so bad now. Like no, I, it's easy. You go, you get one of these uh, mesh bags that they use for like people make their own 
almond milk or something. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it was kale. That's just horrible. The almond milk. Yes, yeah. kale people uh, are But it's like terrible. these like really thin, you know, really small holes in the mesh bag so that the coffee grounds don't get through. You grind your own beans. We found it's best with espresso beans. Uh, and then you put it in the bag in the water overnight and you can have your coffee for the week. So you don't have to like make it every single day. You just like pour it out of the pitcher because it stays for a while. <laughs> and uh, that's so we have we have cold brew. It was from homage to uh, the coffee place that was in our first next to our first apartment. We used to live in Long Island City, Queens, and they had this stuff called rocket fuel, which was cold brew with maple syrup and uh, whole milk. Syrup sounds delicious. You had me at rocket fuel. Yeah. Well, let's let's look at me. You had me at maple syrup. Okay, but <laughs> I mean, for cool points, rocket fuel is definitely the way to go. But there's something about the maple syrup that just adds something to the coffee that the sugar doesn't. You know, it gives a little more depth. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I certainly see I can get along with a coffee. I, I wish I drank it more, but I'm too lazy in the morning to always get coffee. So sometimes it's just, you know, a diet Pepsi, but my wife and I really like coffee. So the next time I need, I need some kind of caffeine first. Thing. I'm just, I just reach around until I grab something. And that's what I drink. Um, of course, sometimes it's almond milk jokes on me, but uh, no, okay. So <laughs> I think my wife and I, when we do have time, we do make some pretty good coffee. And I'm going to be like, hey, you know what I heard? Maple syrup. Maple syrup. That's, that's the key. So, all right, everybody, that's what you're listening. By the way, Brad, I, I'm sure you have around, the, like, it cracks me up that there are people in Uruguay and China and, you know, everywhere downloads our show. So I'm hoping somebody right now in Portugal is going, maple syrup. Maple syrup. Yeah. Maple syrup. Like, it's just mind blown someone's drinking maple sardines because they <laughs> love sardines in <laughs> someone in germany is like put down the beer and pick up the syrup my friend like it's time to get on this so i uh i'm excited i really want someone to tell me about bjorn probably drinks maple syrup in his coffee probably. so it's 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 time to push us forwards that bjorn, i was just like number the number seven medicine podcast in sweden have you seen those like on on chartable, chartable yeah yeah you're like yeah, I, you're like, I was like number 16 in taiwan for like two weeks straight <laughs> and now i'm completely off the charts there no I, america yeah. not so much i used to get excited and i would text on like dude we're like number like 123 on you know in venezuela and it's like and now it's like i think we were up to like 16 in pakistan like last week and i'm like <laughs> yeah oh no this seems trust me, because he he said to me like screenshots of this and then i go is that good i don't even know anymore <laughs> yeah. like like my my center of objectivity to this have now completely changed after doing it for two years i'm like i don't know if where that's do you think even... joe rogan is in there um oh he's number one everywhere like Never. god that guy that guy and here's the thing that cracks me up because we do an hour show and i'm like man this you know it's semi-work intensive uh, more for ben than i but he does three hour shows like multiple times a week i'm like what is this he guy has doing? Teams of researchers. I, so he walks he in. This is his job. I know, but I he mean, walks in. He, he bullshits for three hours. He walks out. Everyone else yeah. is the one doing the editing. The all the stuff. Fair enough. Stuff in the background. I, like, yeah, I, I don't know how we comedian. get to that. Yeah, he's a standard comedian, and they they like it's a skill that they yeah. have that they oh, yeah. trained to do from just doing thousands of hours of on the stage figuring out what works and doesn't work. It's they, they just, they get practice. They get, they get good at it. So he's, a, well, his, his standup on Netflix was awesome. Yes. I really like him and Tom Segura is probably one of my other ones. I listen to a lot, but I, uh, 
I don't know how we get to that level, but when we get there, Brad, um, we're, <laughs> we're with you. like, yes, we're bringing the Brad train with us. <laughs> so you know why, if nothing else, because every day I'm going to be like, I'm drinking coffee. You know what's in it, Ben? Maple syrup. <laughs> so they're... Uh, <laughs> uh, wrap this episode up before it's all syrupy. Uh, so if you like our podcast, of course, you can find us Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast websites, www.justsomepodcast.com, emails, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Brad, why don't you tell them about your podcast one more time? Physician's Guide to Doctoring. It's geared towards physicians, so it's also going to be applicable towards advanced practice providers. So please check it out, physiciansguidetodoctoring.com, at Physician's Guide on Twitter, Physician's Guide to Doctoring on Facebook, and or just check me out, Bradley Block, on LinkedIn. There you go. We need to get each some merchandise, though. We'll, we'll yeah, talk about that. We'll work on the merch. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, hey, on that note, we're going to wrap this episode up. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Brad, thank you for agreeing to come on and uh, educating us on some uh, important topics on ENT. I'm sure that we will come up with some other topics. I'm going to hit you up and have you back as return guest. That'd sometimes. be great. Next time, we'll do throat clearing. Oh, <laughs> yep, that's a big one. That's a big, really, it's a big one. It's a big one. Ben and Tom, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. It has been great. Uh, hey, on that note, I hope everybody has a great week. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there. And I'm just saying, that's every guest, Ben, just to pass the time. Lately, I see why.